This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, NASA plans to send humans to the moon in 2025 and Mars in the 2030s. But a new report sheds light on potential obstacles to success. Then, why the military and intelligence communities are working with a network of creators to craft novels, short stories, and visual art. And the 118th Congress is now in session. We talk about the proposals and investigations already being discussed and what they could mean for federal agencies. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. International collaboration is critical for NASA's multi-billion dollar Artemis campaign to ultimately send a crewed mission to Mars. But a new audit finds that several factors could be hindering the agency's partnerships. Kevin Fagadis is an assistant director in the NASA Office of Inspector General. Kevin, welcome to the program. Good morning. I'm happy to be here to talk about our report. So the Artemis program is very expensive. It's technically challenging. What role are international space agencies going to be playing in achieving it? Well, you touched on that exactly, Mimi, which is it's, our, our estimate was $93 billion is what's going to cost between the time period of 2012 and 2025. And so the international partners are key to be able to make this affordable and sustainable over the long term, just like they did, the international partners did, the space agencies for the International Space Station. And are, is it s such a critical partnership that Artemis could fail? Um, if if they don't come through, or if they if that international partner fails in in fulfilling a, a requirement, well, NASA and their Artemis plan and in their interviews is they see the international partners as critical for the success of the mission, especially given the level of scope that they want to do. You know, which is to go return to the moon, to land on the moon, eventually establish a moon base, and use it as a, a, a launching pad or a jump off for later future exploration of Mars. So they're pretty critical as far as NASA is concerned. Your audit found that fluctuating political guidance could hinder international cooperation on Artemis. Can you explain that? Sure. We found in the, when, we, when we looked at this is the good news was is from one administration to another is the Artemis and the return to the moon campaign has survived. It hasn't changed. So I think you know that over the years we've changed quite a bit from an asteroid retrieval mission to then deciding well, we want to go back to the moon, or do we want to go back to the Mars? So right now, the, the political uh, you know, stability is actually very good. Now, that could change. That could change in the future. But right now, over the past several years, it's been pretty stable. There are over 50 international agreements for Artemis. Does NASA have a strategy co to coordinate all of those? Correct. That was one of our findings that we had, is there are a, a total of 54 agreements with 15 countries plus ESA. And that's not even counting the 23 countries that are part of the Artemis Accords. And so what we found is we thought there needs to be an overall type of agreement or coordination effort to bring them all together. Right now, NASA is pursuing on a bilateral basis, meaning they're working directly with the individual company to determine their contributions. So one of our findings was there needs to be a little bit better of an overall strategy to coordinate this. And with so much interest from other countries, is there a risk of duplicating efforts? 
um, because of that lack of coordination. Uh, exactly. That's that's exactly our point that we have when it comes to the overall strategy and talking about the contributions to make sure there isn't any duplicity. And, and frankly, when you have that many countries that are involved, like I said, 23 countries are under the Artemis Accords. Now, not all of them are part of the 15, obviously. But, you know, to be able to figure a niche or a contribution for each one of these is a challenge. And especially since the interest is so high, uh, all the countries that we talk to are extremely interested in going back to the moon with us. And uh, so making sure that that is a cohesive, organized effort is very important. Does NASA have a plan for protecting American intellectual property from those international space agencies? I mean, I know there are there are friends, but still. They another very good question, and that's that's part of the balance that we found in our our second finding on export control. We, we certainly recognize that, just like you mentioned, is protecting the proprietary and the sensitivity of a lot of our technology is very important. There is a very good process between the international trafficking and arms regulation and the export administration regulations. But what we talked about in our report is finding a balance between both protecting our secrets and the information that we want to, but sharing enough information so that our partner astronauts can perform when they need to and they have the information to build the spacecraft. Give you a good example is the Orion spacecraft. NASA described the Orion spacecraft as kind of a spacecraft that's broken in two parts with ESA, the European Space Agency, building one half and NASA building the other half. And to be able to bring that all together and be uh, have interoperability is important that we have a balance between both. And NASA's management concurred with nine out of your 10 recommendations. So which is that one that they did not agree with? Another good one, you, you put your finger on it, is recommendation four, uh, we haven't been able to get a concurrent on recommendation four on several of our reports. And, and that was essentially to do a gap analysis to do exactly what you were talking about to determine where everybody's gonna fit in and where the gaps are at as far as the architecture and the systems that are needed. And then an overall cost estimate. As we mentioned, we did one in our last report and we estimated $93 billion between 12 and 25. But NASA non-concurred on us asking for another overall cost estimate explaining that the Artemis campaign is not bounded in a way to accommodate actually a cost estimate. Uh, frankly, because after Artemis IV, which is another finding we have, is the architecture is not set then. But in our belief is a comprehensive cost estimate is absolutely needed that, you know, determine not only the affordability of Artemis, but also provide the transparency to the public and the transparency to Congress and the nation. And finally, Kevin, will you be following up with NASA? Will you be tracking the, the progress on your other recommendations? On all of the 10 recommendations, first we have to resolve the recommendation for that we just spoke about the cost estimate, but absolutely, NASA rightly provided us back their plan of action to close the recommendation, the date they expect to do it, and then what happens is they submit it to us, we review the evidence that they've met the intent of the recommendation, and then the OIG will close it. All right. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for sharing that with us. Nice to have you. Thank you, Mimi. Thanks for being. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how a team of storytellers has helped the government communicate with more impact. We'll be right back. A group called Useful Fiction has worked with organizations like the U.S. military and NATO to make information more consumable through the power of stories. 
Peter Singer is managing partner of Useful Fiction. He's a strategist at New America and the author of several books. Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what prompted you and your coworker to create Useful Fiction, and, and how does it work? So my partner, August Cole, used to be a defense reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and I had written a number of nonfiction books on topics like cybersecurity and unmanned systems and the like. But we teamed up to write a book called Ghost Fleet that was a novel about a war with China and what it might look like. But we used the novel to share real-world lessons uh, about everything from supply chain security to cyber issues. And along the way, that mix of novel and nonfiction turned out to be the most influential work of our careers. We were invited to share its real-world lessons everywhere from the White House to the Pentagon to the Navy even created a $3.6 billion ship program that had the same name as the book. And so from that, we realized there was something going on here that you could have greater impact. You could reach more important audiences by bringing together narrative and nonfiction, by using the oldest communication technology of all, which is story. And is there research to back that up, that this approach is more effective and more impactful? Absolutely. Um, and you can think about it in a couple of ways. Uh, one is the way that our own brains work. Uh, when you read a, a white paper, a memo, um, one part of your brain lights up. When you engage with that same information through a narrative, four parts of your brain light up. It's um, simply put, it's evolution at work. You know, we were using uh, story to share information as far back as when we were, you know, in caves sitting around a fire. Um, PowerPoint, it's uh, what? It was created in 1987. We've also experienced that in our own projects. Um, as a great example, we did a, a project for the Australian military where we took a white paper. It was a 21-page report on um, education reform. Really important, uh, but you know, hard to reach a great audience. And so we took that report, we transformed it into a story, and our version of it, um, our useful fiction of it, reached over 15,000 readers. Um, it was republished in one of the most popular magazines for defense officials. But most importantly, among the readers was the head of the entire Australian military and seven US four stars. That's not the numbers, that's not the audience, typically for a report on education, but we got them through story. So has your team helped come up with different scenarios for wargaming? We've um, done uh, that for organizations that uh, range from special operations uh, in the U.S. to the Norwegian military. One of the things that we've um, helped with is uh, whether it's war games, whether it's um, leader conferences, there's a challenge of getting people to um, engage with the pre-reads. Uh, you know, to put it bluntly, a lot of people don't do their homework before they get there. It's also hard to um, get, draw people into a world. And so what we've done is we'll work with organizers to take the important information, um, the kale, so to speak, of their event, and turn it into a smoothie that people are more likely to engage with, more likely to read before they get there. The other thing that we've done with War Games that's been really effective is taking the um, results of it, what's called the um, after action report, the conference report, and turning that into a format that people are more likely to engage with because War Games, leader conferences, they're really valuable, but only the people in the room typically get the fruits of it. So how can you share it with others? And a great way is to turn it into engaging scenarios. 
Peter, do you ever worry that your work could be useful not only to Americans, but to adversaries? I mean, could it give them ideas? That's something that you always have to be aware of. Um, but this goes back to that notion of um, a smoothie. Uh, the organizations that we work with, um, they're the ones that give us the nonfiction content. And then we're the ones wrapping it within that smoothie, wrapping it within that story to make it engaging. So they're the ones saying, you know what, this is the nonfiction content that we're okay getting out there. And so therefore, it isn't giving advantage to some kind of adversary. Um, there's another part of it, though, which I think helps beyond that is um, the 9-11 Commission described that one of the major challenges that was faced back then that continues today was a quote failure of imagination. It's um, the inability to look beyond today, the inability to look beyond our own perspective on an issue. And that's where framing something within a useful fiction can allow you to better prepare for the future and better avoid these kind of catastrophes. So it's not only um, uh, we have a methodology that doesn't share out um, information to adversaries, but also it hopefully better prepares us for what they're trying to create. And uh, speaking of scary situations, what's one of the most frightening scenarios that you came up with? Oh, wow. Um, I think what was most um, scary was a project that we did to help uh, Northern Command on um, what the next 9-11 might be. Not specifically the next terrorist attack, but the next kind of event that um, could be world-changing along the lines of a 9-11. And so we worked with their team where um, in different categories, uh, their top cyber expert, their top bio expert, nuke expert, and from them we asked, what is something that is um, most important, most scary to you, but also least understood by those in the know? So what is it that policymakers need to be more aware of that they're not engaging with right now? And so they identified a certain topic area, and then we brought in a team of um, best-selling authors who paired up with those experts and turned each one of them into a story. So what a 9-11-like moment might look like in um, bioterrorism or what it might look like in a war with China, et cetera. And I think what was, um, to me, most scary about all that was not just their stories, but that every one of those experts and every one of those writers um, connected it to social media and mis- and disinformation. Um, they weren't told to do it, but it was whether it was a bio threat or a war with China, what scared the real world expert and the sci-fi expert the most was how it wrapped in together with misinformation. All right, Peter, we're out of time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back after this. The federal government debt ceiling is expected to lead to a standoff between the president and the House of Representatives. It could mean potential cuts in discretionary spending for federal agencies. Bob Cusack is editor-in-chief of The Hill. Bob, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. So have lawmakers indicated which agencies they will look to cut spending or which programs could be slashed? Well, House Republicans are the driving force uh, for spending cuts, and they haven't exactly outlined what cuts they want. Now, the White House and Democrats in Congress are saying, 
listen, we just need to do a clean debt ceiling. We've done that something like 78 times since 1960 under Republican and Democratic presidents. And Republicans are saying, listen, we just want to come to the table. Um, there is concern about the Defense Department among Republicans. They don't want to cut. A lot of Republicans do not want to cut uh, Pentagon spending. Uh, but that could be part of the deal. So that's where that could divide Republicans. Uh, but as far as other details, look for that in the coming weeks. And what about support for Ukraine? You know, have Republican leaders signaled any change in the level of financial support for Ukraine? Well, uh, top Republicans have said we're not going to write a blank check. They're going to do more oversight on Ukraine. But I do believe there's enough support in Congress, even with the, the House uh, new House Republican majority, that they're going to be able to pass it. But is it going to be drama? Absolutely. This is a situation where uh, the White House is saying we're going to keep giving Ukraine money as long as it takes. Uh, Republicans, however, are going to be doing some oversight on how those funds are spent. But I do think that, uh, by and large, uh, the Congress, at least this one in the short term, is going to be uh, continuing to support Ukraine. And House Republicans are also putting their focus on IRS funding. So what are some of the proposals out there right now? Well, the, the IRS is something that Republicans really want to target. They, they want to eradicate the uh, 87,000 IRS employees over the next decade that were in the Inflation Reduction Act. So they want to basically repeal that part of uh, the law now. Of course, that's a non-starter for, for Democrats who say, listen, the more IRS employees we have, the more we can go after uh, tax cheats and, and people who haven't been audited, and they say that they're going to target uh, the wealthy. However, Republicans are going to be doing oversight on that as well to make sure uh, that's the case and that they don't go after middle-class families. So the, this, the Inflation Reduction Act of 87,000 employees, this really could be a sticking point going forward. It could actually lead to a, a government shutdown. And House Republicans are also promising to hold investigations. So what are you expecting on that front that could impact federal leadership? Well, they're going to be doing a lot of oversight on uh, COVID funds uh, and, and specifically fraud uh, in that area. So that obviously affects a lot of government agencies. Uh, that's, what, that's what Republicans, they're going to have a tough time legislating because they don't have a large majority. They have a slim majority. But I think they're going to be looking at a lot of government agencies, what they spent, uh, and, and fraud that has been in the system and has been reported by media outlets and really exposing that. And Secretary Mayorkas, uh, you know, has been a target of House Republicans. How likely are, is that going to be, the hearings on, on a possible impeachment? Well, Mayorkas is definitely going to be uh, grilled many times on Capitol Hill uh, by, by the new majority. Um, there, there's a lot of talk and legislation that would impeach Mayorkas uh, for his job that he's done so far. Republicans say it's inadequate and, and, and Democrats want open borders. Democrats say that's not the case, but there's definitely a border problem. And, and Democrats and President Biden has shifted a little bit since the election. Do I think Mayorkas is going to get impeached? I don't think so because Democrats are not going to vote uh, to do that. And I think enough Republicans, we've talked to a few more moderate Republicans who say we should be focusing on uh, the economy, not impeaching uh, a cabinet member. And some House committee assignments are still being agreed upon, but have there been any changes um, that have been striking to you so far? Well, there's some uh, very conservative members on the Rules Committee, and that 
rules committee is very powerful kind of inside baseball but but it decides what bills come to the floor and so these were uh, a few of the critics of Kevin McCarthy during that long speaker fight uh, and there's also uh, new committee assignments on the weaponization of uh, of government that's a new committee that's going to be headed by Jim Jordan that's one to watch that's going to be focusing on a lot of different government agencies uh, and that's a controversial panel Democrats say it's going to it's going to be way too partisan and just plain politics and you mentioned this earlier about certain disagreements leading to a possible government shutdown that doesn't make anybody look good both parties typically don't come out looking good on that likelihood I mean is that possible probable I think it's I think it's possible it doesn't look good uh, remember Kevin McCarthy is going up against a lot he's going up against a Democratic controlled Senate uh, a Democratic controlled White House and he's got his far right uh, that he's got to watch uh, and and moderates are also uh, powerful because if they have five or ten uh, Republicans who don't want to do something they can stop legislation so I, I nobody wants a government shutdown but at, at the same time Kevin McCarthy is going to be under enormous pressure uh, to to eradicate that part of the uh, IRS part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and I think it's, you know, it could be 50-50. We're headed for a government shutdown. And uh, very quickly, uh, uh, diversity. What's going on with the new Congress uh, on that front? Well, you know, the diversity in Congress has certainly gotten better uh, over the years, but at the same time, uh, it's not very diverse. We're seeing a lot of uh, white old men still uh, on Capitol Hill, and that's going to be the, the case. Uh, certainly, the Republican Party is less diverse than Democratic Party, but they've been making strides in that area, and they had a number of minorities who ran and, and won uh, this time around. But it's something that, that certainly there needs to be more diversity, and both parties say they're working on that. All right. Well, Bob, thanks so much for joining us. We'll certainly watch what happens. Thanks, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.